Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Progressive View. We apologize that we didn't get one out last week. Rachel was out of town. We couldn't get it to work with our fill-in co-hosts Nina and Kylie. And we tried to actually record earlier this week to make up for that. And I ended up locking my laptop in Gloria Johnson, the state house candidate I'm working for her office. And it ended up, we ended up deciding um, that clearly the the gods did not want us to clear to record an episode that week and so we just went and got mexican food um but we're back and we've got we've got a really exciting show for you today we're going to go over um some stories that i think we do a little too much of um breaking news and things like that i want to go from some stories that people may not have heard about there's one out of politico about president obama and there's one from the atlantic where they talk about a sort of new class system that's been developing in the u.s and i'm really excited to talk about that with rachel um, because it's not something that i think a lot of people have heard of seen or thought of but first we just wanted to give you guys a few life updates so tomorrow um, we're actually recording this on friday even though we're putting it out saturday when you're listening to this most likely um, we are going to the, th- the three-star dinner for the Tennessee Democratic Party, which is basically the statewide um, convention almost. I know in some blue states they have like multi-day conventions. Down in Tennessee, we've just got our, our dinner, um, and the, the keynote speaker there is going to be Senator Doug Jones, so Rachel and I are really excited to meet him. Yes, um, and in full disclosure, I am now officially started my Phil Bredesen internship. Woohoo! Um, so you know, obviously, it, this, Phil. yeah, obviously, our podcast will keep going. Um, this isn't going to change anything, but um, you know, it, it's just to share my role in his campaign. Um, you know, don't want to just to keep up the transparency. Don't want to hide anything from you guys. And of course, I'm still keeping up my work on the Gloria Johnson State House campaign. Rachel's an intern there, so she's kind of got two things going on at once with that. Um, she and I are going to be canvassing tomorrow, and then we're actually leaving with Gloria for the three-star dinner. Um, so that's what's going on in our life right now. Again, we encourage you as much as possible to please get involved. My role at Gloria's um, campaign is I am a field organizer, but I'm specifically a field organizer that's focused on volunteer recruitment. And even in the era of the blue wave, it is really, really hard to get enough volunteers to come in. Part of it is a good thing. It's because there's so many great campaigns that are going on that the number of volunteers are being spread thin. But part of it is that as um, I've seen before, people our age, 18, 19, 20 and up, want to sit at home, kind of complain about what's going on in the world on Twitter or Facebook, but then when I ask them to do something, something always seems to be up. And I, it's not that hard. Canvassing and um, phone banking, it's really actually kind of fun. We're thinking of at Gloria's of introducing a new game called Phone Banking Bingo um, that we stole from another campaign here in Knoxville. But um, yeah, it, it's a really fun thing. There's a lot of times free pizza, free candy, free food. Um, there's little prizes here and there. So please, please, please in Tennessee, Minnesota, New York, California, Washington, Alaska, any state in the country, get involved. So with that, I want to talk about what a lot of liberals are looking forward to and what a lot of other liberals will get honest about for talking about before the 2018 elections even happen. And that's the 2020 presidential election. So president Obama, um, kind of was meeting with, potential 2020 candidates. Um, This is an article out of Politico. It's been kind of something that's on the DL, but a lot of potential 2020 Democratic candidates have met with him. Um, One um, meeting that was spotlighted in this Politico piece was that with Bernie Sanders. Politico points out that though many like to attack Bernie as kind of almost an antithesis to Obama on the left, 
Um, he actually has a lot of respect for Obama. The men, I think, had an, a meeting that lasted over an hour. He also met with Elizabeth Warren. Um, he's been meeting with a lot of other presidential contenders. So, Rachel, kind of what's going on with that? What's the thinking behind that? Why are people meeting with the former president? And more, I think anyone would meet with Barack Obama. But why is Barack Obama, you know, choosing to take these meetings with people that are the future of the Democratic Party? So, obviously, after um, a lot of different pres- most people's presidential terms, um, they don't typically stay too involved in politics. They try to have an off-hands approach. Um, Barack Obama, uh, obviously, after... Um, he got right out of office. He went on that lovely vacation, loved seeing those pictures of him finally Mm -hmm. getting a rest after working hard for eight years. Um, but in the last year he has, uh, you know, due to Trump's getting, you know, attempt to get away of, um, Obamacare and, um, leaving the Iran nuclear deal that was started under Obama's administration. Um, Obama, you know, is obviously still trying to keep up the party and keep up the legacy that he's built. Um, and so he has been, you know, discussing the future of, you know, the state of the party with different top Democrats um, and Democrats that may be running for office in 2020. Um, with Elizabeth Warren specifically, you know, although, uh, you know, Elizabeth doesn't tend to point out, um, you know, criticize Barack Obama, I've, I've rarely seen it. She did point out that it was troubling and questioning um, Obama's meeting with, I think, some Wall Street investors or brokers or something, and he was paid $400,000 yeah, so, to speak there. Y- yeah, Elizabeth Warren has um, criticized him, and I think rightfully so. He does the speeches that Hillary and Bill Clinton did mm-hmm. after they got out of office during Bill Clinton's term, where they he goes in front of Wall Street bankers and speaks about foreign issues or um, issues involving the presidency, involving America, pretty much anything they want to hear about, but he's getting paid by these big banks. And whether you think that influences him or not, it does um, show, I mean, the money, it's not even campaign contributions at this point, it's going directly into his pockets. So it does at least give the appearance of corruption. Um, And Elizabeth Warren, I think, criticized him for that and then ended up meeting with him. Something else that I found interesting was the the people he's meeting with. So um, it's people you expect, like we said, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, Joe Biden, who's a personal friend of Obama, as everyone knows. They've continued to keep up their phone conversations and um, meetings ever since they've both gotten out of office. And he, he also met, he's also met with Deval Patrick, the former, um, Massachusetts governor who many in Obama's circle have, um, have urged to run in 2020, but other people he's been meeting with are, is Mitch Landrieu, the former, um, mayor of New Orleans, who's being considered, uh, a pe- presidential candidate. What we were talking about before the show, Jason Kander, who we met before the 2016 Missouri Senate candidate who actually lost, um, who might run for president, um, and then Pete, and I don't even know his last name because I had never heard his name before this article, Buttigieg or something like that, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who yeah. I found out from this article is apparently considering a run of his own um, for the White House. Yeah. And he also met with the mayor of Los Angeles, um, yeah, Eric although Garcetti. that was when he was visiting town, not in D.C. And, you know, his meetings with... Um, Bernie Sanders and with Elizabeth Warren in particular, um, Elizabeth Warren and him discussed the comments she released after, um, Obama, you know, had his $400,000 speech. Um, and although, you know, they, I think they came on good terms and she realized the 
you know, she didn't apologize for her comments or anything, but she did realize that they had an effect um, on Barack Obama after, you know, she released them. And Bernie Sanders, of course, discussed the future of the party. And um, I'm, you know, I'm just imagining the conversation he had with Obama. I'm definitely imagining him bringing up points of health care and college education affordability. Um, and if, you know, a few years ago, if there were to be top Democratic officials meeting, I don't necessarily know if I would um, think that they would be bringing up college affordability as like a, a top issue. But I think that after um, progressive senators like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have become more mainstream, their ideas have also become more mainstream. And that's something Sanders pushed Clinton on a lot during the campaign. Mm-hmm. I don't think she was expecting it to be as much of a focus. And luckily, he pushed her far enough that it was um, a, a significant focus of hers. Another thing... I mean, going back on my point about the mayors, I don't, I'm not a big fan of this whole mayors and um, failed Senate candidates running for off, running for president type thing. I think that that kind of plays into the rights idea that you don't need any experience for this job. I mean, they do have experience, not that I've ever been a mayor of a small or big town, but come on, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I don't know about that. Anyway, um, Something I'm going to find interesting is who Obama ends up favoring. So there was a White House staffer um, who actually, no, it was a New York Times op-ed that I think of it. And I think it was based on a book by a former White House staffer under Obama. Um, and they talked about, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the names in front of me. I don't have it uh, in front of me right now. But they talked about how Obama basically pushed his loyal vice president to the side in the 2016 election, that being Joe Biden. Um in order to endorse Hillary Clinton, whose, they point out, slogan was almost because it's her turn. And whatever you think of the missteps, mishaps, whatever, of the Clinton campaign, I think it's interesting that Obama was willing to push aside Joe Biden, someone who's a close personal friend of his, um, to endorse Hillary Clinton. We have to remember, of course, Hillary Clinton, the person that he beat in an against-all-odds primary in 2008, criticizing her from the left. So... I think that's really interesting, and I think it's going to be interesting to see whether he ends up endorsing Deval Patrick, the former Massachusetts governor, who they're big fans of, um, the former Virginia governor is being considered, and then, of course, Joe Biden, who's a close personal friend of his. And those are all candidates who are not, um, they're not not progressive, but they're certainly not Bernie Sanders. They're more Obama types. So I could see him, I I don't think he's going to endorse in the primary. He didn't last time, from what I remember, but I think that he will... um, be throwing his support and his organizations and his people will be throwing their support behind certain candidates. And I wonder who they're going to line up behind because there's a lot of people in this race that kind of have Obama loyalties. Yeah. So, you know, in the upcoming months, we'll be able to see um, not only how much the blue wave is successfully, you know, able to take effect, which uh, seats are flipped, but also that is most likely when candidates who um, are considering a presidential run will most likely announce that's uh, in this article specifically Joe Biden you know he's said that he was waiting to see how things drown the midterms and so along with seeing that exciting news we'll get to um, see who may be on our ballots so now we are going to be discussing a very interesting article that was released in the Atlantic a little bit ago um, by Matthew Stewart and the title of this article is called The Birth of a New American Aristocracy. And so, you know, a lot of the times uh, when people are describing our the way that um, our society is divided up, you know, it's like the one percenters and the 99 percenters. Um, and what this article does is describe that that's a lot more of a slogan than an actual mathematic term. Um, so, Jack, why don't you describe to us a little bit about how 
the nature of our society is changing in terms of economic um, groups. Yeah, so there's a great video that went along with this that it's going to be hard to describe um, with voice, but we'll see how good of a podcaster I am here. So it shows a man and he's standing at the bottom of a ramp. He walks up the ramp and once he's at the top, um, his weight pushes down that side of the ramp and it makes it so that he is now facing downhill. And this is really, really difficult to explain. So I encourage you to just watch the video. But basically, the next person who tries to walk up the ramp can't because that side of the ramp is now the back end, the part that you can't get up. Um, and so what it's ba- what that image is basically conveying is that with this 9.9%, which is the income earners from 90 to 99.9% um, in terms of um, their percentile, are doing is they are advancing through they're reaching success in adulthood and then not building the bridges and the roads and the ladders that people need to climb drive and walk to success um, behind them so basically a lot of times this is not the people you think of like wall street investment bankers or as they talked about it um, in the video tech bros or anything like that this is your people that you interact with this is dentists doctors lawyers um if we're being full disclosure here people like rachel and i's parents rachel has a dad that's a doctor i have two parents that are lawyers um and i don't know their exact income levels but that's the type of people that generally fit within this psychologist you know very white collar people but not the people that are in the um, top building top floor on a manhattan you know lower manhattan investment bank building i mean it's not those people but it's still people that are doing very well don't have to worry at all about income insecurity um, can send their kids to good colleges things like that and so what it talks about is how these people may have good intentions, but they kind of lock themselves into the wealth that they're already in um, to protect their own kids. So what it talks about is we always see these charts throughout the years of how the bottom 90%, their share of the wealth has in the past few decades significantly declined, while the top 0.1%, their wealth has significantly increased. The group of people whose wealth has stayed the same throughout that period of decades is this 9.9% of people. And what it also, what this article also talks about is how social mobility, we have this idea of the American dream in America, um, where people, it's a meritocracy, people are able to advance based on working hard, getting ahead, things like that. But what they actually find is that in other developed countries, and many people on the left may know this, but many other developed countries statistically have a much more robust meritocracy than the United States does. And a lot of that problem can come from certain 9.9%ers who advocate against public um, funding public schools completely, advocate against these public programs that may have helped them in the past or helped their family or their ancestors because it means that they might have to pay more in taxes or something like that. They didn't directly address that in the article, but I think that's what they're pointing at. Um, and so I think it's interesting how we always talk about the 1% or the 0.1% versus the 99.9%. And there's a group of people, and I don't think they have bad intentions. I don't think we should demonize them. But a lot of times they end up in the wrong policy position trying to defend their own status and wealth um, because they think that everyone has it as easy as they do, as easy as their kids do. So they may think, 
oh, well, I got into a good college because I work hard, worked hard, but they may forget that they got to go to a really good, whether it be a really good public school or even a private school that pushed them ahead. They had supportive parents. They got good grades and they did that, but they did that with support. And there are kids in lower income communities who might be or might have been just as smart as they are or were, but don't have that support system that um, they had and they don't necessarily see that. And then it causes them to believe that they got there all on their own. And it's also interesting to see how um, these groups, you know, end up in terms of race, because when you talk about the top one percent, it is like I don't know if it's entirely white, but it's mostly um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, even the nine point nine percent is almost entirely white. But it is become a more diverse class than in the past, Um, more and more people of color and um, uh, more and more people like, you know, who are mixed races are starting to come up, which is an interesting um, change from in the past of it, you know, being held completely or almost entirely by white men. Yeah. And, and that's a good development. And I think that it shows the work we're, or the progress we're making, but there's still a lot of progress to come. Obviously, the bottom 90 percent are not um, entitled to any less dignity or respect. And the fact that their wealth has been significantly dis- decreasing over the past few decades um, due to wage stagnation. I mean, there's always the statistic of the average CEO makes this much times more than uh, this many times more than the average worker at their company. And I think a lot of those statistics are really scary and show the vast inequality that we have in this country that maybe other countries don't have. And at the same time that this inequality is expanding, we're not investing um, kind of in the the social programs like education, healthcare, um, decent paying jobs like we should. Uh, and that's something we can talk about in the abstract. But I mean, here in Tennessee, that means we haven't expanded Medicaid uh, when many other states have, when it's basically the gov- the federal government offering us our tax dollars back. Um, even in many blue states, it might mean that there's not significant enough federal services or the services are being misused or whatever else. Um, the, the thing about Americans that we that is found in polling over and over again is that Americans will trade... They they believe that they are um, very likely to end up in the top 1% or top 9.9% and that the percentage of people that think they're going to end up there is not borne out at all by the actual percentage of people that are there, which is 9.9% of people. So what they think, what a lot of Americans think is they think, well, you shouldn't raise taxes on the wealthy because I'm going to be wealthy one day and I'm going to be paying those taxes. But what ends up happening is then we don't raise taxes on the wealthy um, and it's not raising taxes to 90% or anything like that, as people on the right like to talk about. It's just raising it enough so we can get um, decent healthcare, education, all these things that you know provide people with a basic social safety net that they have in other countries, other first world countries. Um, but we end up not raising those taxes, not doing those services, and then those people can't advance to the point that they want to advance, or it makes it a lot more difficult. And I think that people forget that a lot. So to wrap up this episode, we're going to do a little run through the headlines. Um, So recently, the Trump administration announced that um, over a period of six weeks, 2,000 children have been separated at the border from their parents. Um, And this policy, I think it was, you know, uh, was it just advocated um, or was it introduced by Jeff Sessions or was Mm -hmm. it from the mind of, okay, yeah. 
Oh my gosh. But, uh, um, but anyways, it just shows the direction that this country's going. You know, it absolutely sickens me to my stomach. You know, I've seen so many stories that have come out in the, the last week about personal stories about these children being separated from their parents. Um, this is evil. This is not a political, you know, debate. This is like a human rights debate. This is absolutely inappropriate for uh, our administration. You know, these are refugees coming to the border, coming to escape from gang violence in Mexico and, and from other South American and Central American countries. Um, and it absolutely... Uh, disgust me that our administration thinks it's okay. And, you know, there was even something this week about a old Walmart that had been turned into um, a housing for all of these children. And there's even like a mural of Trump on the wall that they see every day. And, uh, yeah. yeah, very upsetting. Um, another thing that happened was the um, Trump Kim North Korean summit. Um, over denuclearization, which means two very different things to the two countries, which we could do a whole podcast about. Um, the folks at Vox did that actually on Worldly, and I listened to that. But um, basically what came out of that was the um, uh, we as the Americans agreed to stop doing um, quote-unquote war games, as Trump put it, which, was military ex- which were military exercises with the South Koreans that basically simulated... Um, invasion of North Korea um, and it was just a simulation we did it every year with them but we are not doing that anymore and what we got in return was Kim agreeing to denuclearize which sounds like a lot but Kim has done that exact same thing in the past so basically what we did and I got in an argument with actually a television pundit here in town over this but what we did was we allowed um we allowed Kim to promise something that he has promised in the past with no other concessions while we conceded that we would no longer be doing these military exercises. So whether you agree with doing the military exercises or not, we gave a concession for nothing in return, which really shows you how much Trump has actually read his own book, The Art of the Deal. (laughs) And um, lastly, some exciting news about Trump's uh, ex-campaign manager, Paul Manafort, has come out. Um, Although he was, you know, Trump cites that he was only the campaign manager for, you know, a very short amount of time, (laughs) but it was, I think, five months, which is still a, a pretty huge chunk of time. But anyways, basically what happened is the ex president of Ukraine, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but it's like um, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, yes, Um, and basically, you know, he was trying to get other politicians and people in government around the world to do his bidding for him before he was, you know, kicked out of Ukraine, Um, and Paul Manfort has been, um, you know, his charges are witness tampering of two uh, uh, government officials. and the judge actually sentenced him to jail. And her quote was that, you know, this isn't middle school. I can't take away his phone, which is a pretty funny thing. I wish I could have been there to witness it. But, you know, um, the witch hunt, as Trump has called it, you know, it's finally coming in and hopefully we'll finally get some justice. So I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. We encourage you again to check out our website, which is progressiveu.com, where you can learn more, listen to more episodes, learn more about us, um, learn how to support the show. Again, I encourage you as much as possible, please get involved in politics no matter where you live. It's really, really important. Rachel and I are excited that our hard work is paying off and we're getting to meet, hopefully, Senator Doug Jones tomorrow. Um, which will be around the time that you're listening to this. So wish us the best of luck as you listen to this. Thank you so, so much for your time. Share with your friends, rate in the iTunes store, wherever you're listening to this. We appreciate you so, so much and have a nice day. Thank you so much. Bye.